Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Now, today we're going to do something a little bit different. You see, we've hit a pretty big milestone. We've just hit our 50th podcast episode, and that's the reason to celebrate, right? So of the, in those 50 episodes, we've had almost 4 million YouTube views and audio downloads. And our team at Diet Doctor thought, wow, what a wonderful opportunity to step back and reflect on those first 50, 50 episodes. And, and for that, I have to say thank you to you, our viewers, and our listeners who made this possible and allowed us to reach almost 4 million downloads and views. Um, I think that's remarkable. And, you know, when I started um, doing this podcast about two years ago, I, I said, look, even if nobody tunes in and listens, I'm going to enjoy this immensely because uh, let's be honest, it gives me the opportunity to sit down and meet with some incredible people and have some very engaging and interesting conversations that I've enjoyed. But of course, it's not just about me. And I'm thrilled that there've been so many of you who have come along for the ride and hopefully enjoyed this podcast as much as I have. And of course, I also have to give a thanks to the whole team at Diet Doctor who have made this a wonderful product. The audio quality, the video quality, it makes it a pleasing experience um, to watch and listen to beyond just the information. So um, that, that's that been a wonderful ride and I'm thankful for this opportunity to stop um, and reflect. So our goal at Diet Doctor is to empower people everywhere to make low carb simple. And again, when we started this just about two years ago in, in August, 2018, we thought this would be a wonderful medium to help us fulfill that goal of helping people make low carb simple. Um, but not just simple practical tips. As, as a cardiologist, as a lipidologist, I love the science. I really do enjoy the science of nutrition and the science of health. But I also, as a clinician, I know it's important to bridge the gap between the science and the practical information. And that's really what I, what I set out to do, to try and uh, collect some of the greatest minds in the low-carb world and help to solidify the science, clarify the science, and translate it to what people can do um, to, for practical implications to improve their health. So I hope we've done a good job of that, and it's something I definitely want to improve on uh, moving forward. But in addition... I always like to say we have to make sure the strength of our recommendation is matched by the strength of the evidence. And that's something hopefully I've tried to make clear through this podcast. And again, something I want to work on more uh, moving forward because we don't want to just keep um, repeating folklore, keep repeating things that have been passed down. I think that's how medicine got into uh, quite a bit of trouble and kind of steered the wrong direction. So I don't want to fall into the same trap when it comes to low carb or when it comes to um, nutritional theories and beliefs. Um, so I want to keep questioning um, all our beliefs and portraying that um, in the most honest and open manner that I can. Um, and that kind of leads me to what are my thoughts moving forward uh, to the next 50 episodes. So um, in addition to keeping these goals going, I also want to start to branch out and start to reach more people, not just in the low-carb world, but people who maybe don't know about low-carb or are openly skeptical about low-carb. I'd love to uh, have a medium that reaches them and helps educate them and bring them in to learn more. That's why I, I love that di at Diet Doctor, we have our continuing medical education program to reach doctor doctors and nutritionists and nurses, and we're developing a coaching program. These are the, uh, This podcast can help further that goal of reaching more people to educate um, them about low carb. And that's where I'm going to depend on you, our listeners, for for comments and likes and shares and, and to keep this conversation going so we can reach more people to help more people transform their lives. I mean, that's what this is really, really about. Those are lofty goals. Um, but I think together with the team at Diet Doctor and together with you as our viewers and listeners, something we can definitely achieve. So now let's get to the meat of this. Let's get to the meat of this episode. Uh, we're going to recap our top 
five most popular episodes, and then five of some of my um, favorite moments. All right. So start off with number one, our most popular episode with over half a million views and downloads, episode number 23 with Dr. Jason Fung. Dr. Fung is, has become a pioneer of um, intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, its impact on type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, obesity, and now even potentially cancer and longevity, really trying to further this concept of, of intermittent fasting as a wonderful intervention for health promotion. Um, now he's been kind of out on the edge promoting this and has gotten a lot of pushback because of it. But think of all the people that who, whose lives he has impacted with his message. And he really has um, a wonderful approach. It's um, understatedly brilliant, as I like to say. He tries to really make it very simple, but still very sophisticated at the same time. So there's there's no wonder why he is our, our most popular episode. So, so here's a clip where he's talking about the role of insulin in cancer and longevity, which is a controversial topic, but I think he does a wonderful job of making it understandable um, and really creating some excitement for what's to come in terms of research and how intermittent fasting can help be a powerful tool. Looking at obesity, for example... The World Health Organization lists 13 uh, cancers as obesity-related, right? And including breast cancer and colorectal cancer, sort of the number two and number three cancers after lung. Which doesn't mean that obesity causes these cancers, but, no, but it plays a role. Plays a role and right. makes it more likely. So sort of yeah. the, uh, if you have a genetic mutation and you're obese, now the deck is really stacked against you. Exactly. So. But now there's something you can do about it yeah. because if you have a genetic mutation, eh, there's nothing you can do about it. You have it. Like, I'm not going to change it. If you have it, you have it. I can't do anything about it, but I can change the environment in which that cancer cell lies because we know it's vitally important. So you take a Japanese woman in Japan and you move her to Hawaii and then San Francisco, the rate of breast cancer like triples, right. even though the genetics are exactly the same. So what's the difference? The difference is clearly the diet and the environment in which that breast cancer cell is living. So again, what is going to stimulate breast cancer cells to grow? And in the lab, the answer is very clear. Insulin is what breast cancer cells need. You can't barely grow breast cancer cells in a, in, a, in a dish without insulin. If you take away the insulin, they all like die, right? Yeah. And if you give them lots of insulin, they grow because the nutrient sensing pathways are the same as the growth pathways. So you take this breast cancer cell and remember, the obesity didn't, didn't cause the cancer, right? The, but after that cancer cell is there, you're going to stimulate it to grow if you have a lot of insulin. So that so type 2 diabetes, a disease of hyperinsulinemia, higher risk of cancer. Obesity, disease of hyperinsulinemia, higher risk of cancer. And then you say, okay, what about the other ones? What about AMPK, for example? What blocks AMPK or what affects AMPK? Metformin. It's like, oh, well, you know that metformin in a lot of studies has been associated with a significantly decreased rate of breast cancer. It's like, is it the effect on AMPK? It's a very interesting hypothesis. What about mTOR? It's like, because those are the three main nutrient sensing pathways. Well, mTOR, you can block mTOR with rapamycin. And guess what? It is an anti-cancer medication. 
right? Why? Right. Because you're blocking the pathway. So rapamycin is super, super interesting because it blocks mTOR, right? So it's developed as an immune suppressing drug. Our second most popular episode is episode number 31 with Dr. Ken Berry. Now, I love Ken because he calls it like he sees it, and we're all better off because of that. I mean, let's be honest. The, the medical institution as a whole over the past few decades really has started to confuse people and lead people down an incorrect path when it comes to, to health of chronic diseases. And Ken calls it. You know, he's going to call the medical community on this and point out where he thinks they've made mistakes and provide a path of what he sees as a way out of this to improve health. And I think that's why his message resonates with, with so many people. His, his no BS, call it like I see it approach um, really resonates with people. And it's no, no surprise that he's our second most uh, popular episode. Um, so I especially like when he talks about his concept of the proper human diet, a, coin, a term which I think he coined, um, but is certainly becoming more and more popular and very fitting uh, for a low-carb diet, the proper human diet. So here's a clip of, of he and I discussing this. So when it comes to treating metabolic disease, when it comes to treating diabetes in your 20-year career, have you seen anything even remotely as effective as a low-carb diet? Nothing ever. Nothing yeah. ever. If you could patent a pill that does everything that a low-carb diet does, you would be a trillionaire. Yeah. But there is, there is no medication. There is nothing except, and, and I've, I've started calling it the proper human diet mm -hmm. because if I'm giving you a slow poison every day, you're going to be sick. I'm not going to kill you today or even tomorrow. You might not die for 25, 30 years, yeah. but I'm poisoning you a little bit each day. You're going to have inflammation. You're going to have bad lab markers. You're not going to feel good. You're going to be irritable. You're going to, you're going to get obese, uh, too overweight or too skinny. You're just not going to be healthy and vibrant and vigorous. And so then when I remove that slow poison from your diet and you get better, Everybody's surprised by that? Really? <laughs> is that shocking? And so I think <clears throat> what most low-carb diets do is they remove the slow poison of sugar, grains, and industrial seed oils. That's mm -hmm. the three big steps of any ancestrally appropriate diet, and people get better. Yeah. But it's not because you've added something magical to their diet or to their medical regimen or to their supplement regimen. That has nothing to do with this. What you've done is you've just stopped poisoning that mammal. And then the mammal gets healthier when you stop poisoning it. And so I think when you feed a human being the proper human diet, yeah. they get healthier and they get happier and they, they get more productive and they get more successful. It's almost like you give them a superpower when you start feeding them the diet that their DNA knows what to do with. Now, that makes complete sense, but you mentioned earlier when you hear that X, Y, and Z and everything gets better, it sounds almost like a snake oil salesman. So is there a population that doesn't thrive with this type of diet? Is there someone that you've seen in your clinic that is, doesn't work for for some reason or that you would caution against this? What's the, what's the downside if there is one? Yeah, I haven't found it yet. Yeah. There is a very minuscule subpopulation that may not be able to eat a high-fat diet if they have some inborn errors of fatty acid metabolism. Mm -hmm. They may not be able to eat this diet. And I, I was doing research to do a YouTube video about this population, but I, it, literally in the, in the U.S., it's about 750 people oh. in the entire U.S. who cannot eat a high-fat diet because they just can't digest that much fat. Everybody else can do it. Yeah. There, is, there is no 
patient population who shouldn't eat this way. At least I've yet to find them. Now, our third most popular episode is Dr. Peter Atia. Now, it was only my second episode as host of the Diet Doctor podcast. I gotta admit, I was a little nervous for this one, uh, especially because Peter has such an amazing mind that thinks about longevity and health and nutrition in such deeper and broader ways than, than most people ever could. So I was a little nervous to make sure that we could do this justice in just an hour-long interview. I mean, trust me, I wish I had three hours to continue to pick his brain. But this was a, a wonderful tour of both him as a, an individual, as a physician, and sort of his thought process on approaching people when it comes to health and longevity. Um, I especially appreciate this clip where we... Um, where we talk about the burning question, people want to know, will I be healthier or live longer on a ketogenic diet? I appreciate Peter's uh, approach to this question and his answer. So here it is. When you're working with a patient and someone says, will I be healthier and live longer on a ketogenic diet? How do you, how do you approach that? What's your thought process to help them figure out if that's the case? I mean, first it's to acknowledge that I have no earthly clue if they will be healthier or live longer on a ketogenic diet. Uh, that's an unknowable, uh, you know. That's that's an answer to an unknowable. Uh, that's an unknowable, uh, unknowable question. So, so I, I say, look, let's let's stop thinking of these things as this is one type of diet. That's one type of diet. Let's just think of, and this is an unsexy way to think about food, but let's just think of it as a bunch of biochemistry. So, all you're basically eating is a bunch of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, sulfur, a bunch of little cofactors. But that's all we're doing is we just take organic matter, that organic matter goes through our system, we metabolize it, it's, it, it has you know, signaling cascades that come from it, it triggers enzymes, hormones, we assimilate some of it, we discard some of it. Okay, so, let, let, so let's you know, de-religionize this thing, right? It's like right. I'm on this diet versus that diet and that's my tribe that eats this diet. I mean, I, I think all of that stuff is sort of hyper dangerous and, and I will acknowledge that at some point in my life I probably contributed to that sort of bizarre mania. Um, so, so the real question is, you know, you have lots of things to consider with, within the realm of nutritional biochemistry. And what you eat is part of it, but so is when you eat and when you don't eat and how you cycle that exposure to nutrient. So when I think about um, going back to this strategy of longevity, one of the tenets of this strategy is that some cyclical exposure to nutrients appears necessary for longevity. So if you constitutively downregulate nutrients, which is called caloric restriction, and you do that in perpetuity, there is some benefit from that, but it seems to be offset by some detriment. So that doesn't appear to actually be a longevity um, tactic, uh, at least for animals in the wild, including humans, given that we are in the wild. Our fourth most popular episode is episode number 28 with Amy Berger. Now, I've been fortunate enough to be following Amy for years since she wrote her uh, her book about Alzheimer's. And she actually, I had the opportunity to interview her for the Low Carb Cardiologist podcast a number of years ago. Um, and this was a great chance to, to reconnect with her and interview her again. She also, she has sort of a no-nonsense practical approach to low carb. It doesn't have to be difficult. It, in fact, it can be quite easy. And we don't have to get caught up in a lot of the things that people promote as things we have to do or everybody should do. None of that applies to every individual. And Amy's message really resonates with people individually because it it doesn't have to be that complicated. And I think that's why people love her, her message so much. Um, she continues to hold up 
uh, allow us to hold the mirror up so we can see our reflections and realize we're all human beings. We're all going to struggle. We're all going through, going to go through this, um, but we can go through it together and we can lean on each other and we can be just good human beings as we go through this process. And, um, and we can help ourselves and help others while still being good human beings. I, I really appreciate that message from Amy. Um, so here we discuss the role of replacement products, um, and, um, how, that can sometimes lead to food addiction. So uh, we have to be careful about the message of these products being safe and easy and necessary on a ketogenic diet. Again, it comes down to the personalization. So here's some of that um, approach comes through in this discussion. You know, I look at these keto cookbooks and and they're delicious. And I we're so lucky to have these creative food bloggers. But I think some people can get into trouble with the the keto muffins and keto brownies. And it's Yes, let's talk about that. I mean, there's so many keto products on the market now, keto cookies and and trying to replace the things that we had to quote unquote give up right. and the fat bombs and the bulletproof coffees and the, you know, the, the des- keto desserts. And, um, when someone gets started, sort of, that's what they're looking for. They want to replace all these things. And I don't know, sometimes it seems like that's more dangerous than helpful. And it sounds like you, you might agree with that in many situations. Yeah. I think for some people it, it's, it's a really good bridge. It's a really good way to get you over the hump, you know, get, get yourself adjusted. But I also think in some people, it perpetuates the desire for something sweet, even if it's fake sweet or, you know, with sugar alcohols. And I'm not against these products. I, I think they, they really do have a place. If if having a keto cookie or a keto brownie is, is going to mean the difference between someone sticking to keto in general versus not, then have it. By all means, do it. Yeah. But I also think, you know, something that we don't talk about enough in this community is food addiction and binge eating and really serious psychological and physical problems with food that people have. And I think it doesn't really do you any good to replace a sugar binge addiction with an erythritol binge addiction or, you know, for a lot of people, going keto reverses that. They find the sugar cravings are gone, the desire to binge is gone, um, because keto just regulates appetite so well. And and there's there's been people who say, for the first time in my life, I'm not hungry. Mm-hmm. For the first time in my life, I can go from one meal to the next without fantasizing about food or what my next meal is going to be. Uh, but that doesn't happen for everybody. And I think these sorts of products feed into that for some people. Like I right. think really you just have to know how you're wired because some people can do fine with them and some some cannot. And our fifth most popular episode, episode number 36, is with Dr. Eric Westman. Now, Dr. Westman is such a, an important pioneer in the, in the world of low-carb movement. And he's been doing this as a physician for decades. And so to be able to sit with him and just get a sample of some of his nuggets of wisdom and his experience was a wonderful opportunity. And he's also um, a, a very unique individual because he's done the research. He understands the research. He's published the papers and he's seen thousands of patients. So in my quest to sort of combine the science and the practical implications, it doesn't get much better than with Dr. Westman. And so here in this clip, he talks about his perspective on sort of the early keto studies um, and how we can sort of balance the concept of, of leaning on the literature, but understanding the holes in the literature and combining that with the all important clinical experience. So here's this clip with Dr. Eric Westman. To be fair, a lot of the low carb versus low fat studies, you know, the curves separate at, you know, six months that low carb is better for weight loss. And then at 12 months, they sort of start to come together a little bit. And then the compliance drops off, even in the studies. 
Um, so one of the big concerns is it's not a long-term sustainable diet. How do you how do you respond to those criticisms? Uh, well, as someone who provided several studies to the literature on this, and know and I know a lot of the other uh, authors of the other papers, most of them knew nothing about how to support a patient in a trial. Yeah. So you don't want to look to the clinical research and publications, the old data anyway, on how to help someone stay on it because they were there was the blind leading the blind. Mm. I remember one investigator basically read the Atkins book. I said, well, did you go talk to Dr. Atkins? He said, well, no, I can't do that. I have to be impartial. I said, well, <laughs> I actually talked to Dr. Atkins and what we did is we, and what he did is he kept the carbs down 20 grams or less for the whole time. And oh, that wasn't in the book. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I wouldn't talk to the doctor. So, so the first round of studies, you just got to realize that they weren't done by the people who know how to do it. And so I, I kind of look at the, again, is only, the only evidence what's in the literature? Obviously not. Right. So we can do better than those studies if we pull out all the bells and whistles. Imagine if we could shame and guilt, and of course I never do that, but if we could, you know, instill the fear of eating carbs in someone like the fear of eating fat is instilled in someone, yeah. that would help with long-term adherence. In fact, there's so many people I can't get to eat fat because they're so afraid of it, you know? Right. So um, I think the idea of um, you can't stay on it is doctors wanting a reason to just think they know more and they read the papers and, and they couldn't do it themselves. So how could they envision someone else doing it? And so this is another reason why it's a grassroots ground up thing. Cause I know people who've done this for a long time, right. decades like me. Right. <laughs> and well, you know, Oh, you're not normal. No. In fact, I don't do a whole lot of, um, obsessing about things and, um, uh, I think it's become easier and easier now that the environment is, become more supportive. Just in the last year in our area, you can get uh, riced cauliflower. The big stores are selling it in cheese crisps and all this stuff we used to have to teach people how to do. Yeah. So there's definitely a change that helps with the long-term um, ability of people to stay on it. Um, but yeah. there's also a role for helping people through the sticking points. Well, those were five of the most popular episodes. So now... I wanted to pick some of my favorite um, moments from the podcast that sort of highlights what I've been trying to accomplish. Now, there are so many. Of course, it's been a little difficult, but let's just get right into them. So one was episode number 47 with Adele Height. Now, this interview is the perfect example of how we have to question our beliefs um, and pretty much question everything. I mean, Adele, as you as we went over in the podcast, ever since she was a kid, she's been questioning authority and questioning beliefs, and it served her well because she... Uh, I, she's such a, a welcome um, in, interaction with me. I'm fortunate enough I get to dis work with her on, on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis, at Diet Doctor because she's forced me to rethink a lot of what I believe. And that's what we went over um, quite a bit in this podcast, whether it's the dietary guidelines, whether it's um, seed oils, um, whether it's eating more fat. Um, you know, She really questions um, the myths of low carb or the um, things that have been propagated down. And, and look... Um, because of that, because she questions things, she can be a little controversial and you may not agree 100% with everything she she believes or what she says, but boy, she is good at defending her position and she's good at um, really making us kind of realize that we need to question ourselves more. So so here's a clip where um, 
We hear her perspective on Ansel Keys and the politics of food policy, and it's a little contrary to what we're used to hearing. So this is a sample of um, how Adele Height can kind of force us to kind of rethink things. The dietary guidelines as we see them now were initially meant for a clinical population. So the American Heart Association had some views about what type of diet was best for people who were at high risk for heart disease or had already been diagnosed for heart with heart disease. And so that this was is back a low in the nineteen sixties. You're talking about like back in this the sixties. Back in the nineteen sixties, right? Okay. Nin- that was a high, um, a, a high carbohydrate, low fat, low cholesterol diet. At the same time. Other physicians were using low-carbohydrate, higher-fat diets to treat obesity and diabetes. Those were already in circulation and being used. Um, At the time, um, you know, uh, Ansel Keys had already distanced himself from the idea that cholesterol, dietary cholesterol, had anything to do with heart disease. And so the fact that we blame low-cholesterol diets on Ansel Keys is sort of silly because he... He was not supporting that, that theory at all. But there were a number of people, Mark Hegstead and William Connor, who were. Um, so how, in does, addition, how did that get so misunderstood? Because Ansel Keys clearly did his, his seven-country study and, and at that point was promoting the connection between dietary fat, dietary cholesterol, and heart disease. Um, no, dietary fat, particularly saturated fat, but he was a, he, w- he did not think that obesity had anything to do with chronic disease. He did not think that um, that dietary cholesterol had anything to do with it. And of course, he didn't think that dietary sugar um, levels had anything to do with heart disease. But saturated but fat, he did. Saturated fat was the bad guy. Okay. But what McGovern's committee did was that they listened to all of these experts with all of these competing theories, and they sort of mashed them together in a big pile and the the biggest reason that the low carb diet sort of didn't get represented in this has to do with politics not with science another one of my favorite moments was my my interview with Dr. Angela Poff in episode 44 now one of the reasons why i like this so much is is what i've said earlier in the in introduction that I believe the strength of our recommendation and the strength of our language has to be backed by the strength of evidence. And the way scientists should speak, the way scientists um, can speak and is really exemplified by Dr. Poff. I mean, she is so smart, so knowledgeable, knows the research inside and out, but isn't going to give you the flashy uh, headlines that everybody wants to click on. Instead, she's going to use a metered approach to say, look, this is what we know. This is what we don't know. This could be the potential implications. And these are the things we have to be concerned about. And this is where we can go further. And, and listening to her speak is how I wish every scientist spoke. I think there'd be a lot less confusion, um, a lot less grandiose uh, thinking and comments, but really bring it back to reality of, of what we know. And I, I really appreciate that um, about Dr. Poff. And I really wish more people um, will learn from her example of her her brilliance and the way she speaks and the way she relays herself. So I think just by watching and listening to this clip, you'll understand exactly what I mean about her approach and why I appreciate it so much. To put things in perspective, when people say a ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones may be helpful in cancer therapy, 
would you ever recommend them as a solitary cancer therapy? The data does not support that yeah, at all. I think that's important <clears throat> to clarify. So we absolutely. really talk about an adjunctive therapy. Yes, integrative, absolutely. Yeah. And depending, it, it all depends on how important the specific um, mechanisms that you're targeting are for that tumor. Even with the ketogenic diet, this is why I think that the ketogenic diet seems to at least in the preclinical studies where it's mostly been um, studied in cancer, seems to have an anti-cancer effect in a majority of the cancer types that it's been tested in, not all. That's important to know, first of all. Um, but it is influencing many, many things. So unlike a, a targeted um, cancer drug that may be influencing a specific genetic mutation, the ketogenic diet is changing hundreds of metabolic pathways at once. It's also influencing a large number of signaling pathways simultaneously through epigenetic alterations. So I think that the ketogenic diet, because it's influencing so many things at once, that's why we see that at least the preclinical literature suggests it may be effective to some degree in a larger number of cancers. Along those same lines, another one of my favorite moments was my interview with Dr. David Ludwig in episode number 12. Now, as a, a clinician and researcher at, at Harvard, um, he's in the highest echelon of both, of both um, uh, dealing with patients as a clinician and performing nutritional research. But, I mean, let's be honest. Nutritional research is called nutritional wars for a reason. It can get messy. It can get ugly. Ad hominem attacks. People just really standing... Uh, standing hold gripping hold of their position and digging in and and not trying to be open-minded well david ludwig doesn't do any of that and that's what i love about him he is a shining example of how researchers should behave not only how they should talk like like dr poff which he also um exemplifies but how they should behave with one another and it's not personal it's not a religion it's not about whether you're right or wrong it's about it's about finding the answer that's going to help people and you can really see that in dr ludwig's approach um he's a wonderful human being a wonderful researcher and scientist and i really uh, enjoyed this interview with him and i enjoyed every interaction with him because of the way he handles himself so here's a clip of him um, describing the carbohydrate insulin model and, and again, I think you can just see by his demeanor and his speech um, why I appreciate him so much. Well, first off, uh, no single study is conclusive and definitive, and we can talk about that in a moment. But let me provide the broader context. You know, on the one hand, uh, obesity treatment has focused on so-called calorie balance. Uh, eat less, move more, doesn't matter how you do it, and that is the primary focus both for public health uh, as well as treatment in the clinic. So an alternative paradigm, um, which we've been developing along with others, is called the carbohydrate insulin model. Now, it focuses on carbohydrate and insulin but because you, you need a name for something, but it's not a single nutrient, single hormone hypothesis. It's, it proposes that we've had it backwards, that overeating doesn't cause obesity over the long term that the process of getting fat causes us to overeat. Now, that's a little hard for the mind to hold, but think about it. Uh, think about what happens in pregnancy. A woman um, typically eats a lot more. She's hungry. She has food cravings. She eats more. And the fetus is growing. But which is coming first? Is the overeating causing the fetus to grow? Or is the growing fetus that's taking up extra calories 
triggering the mother to be hungry and eat more. You know, of course the latter, we understand it. The same, same is true for an adolescent in a growth spurt. You know, you and I, no matter how much we eat, aren't going to force our bodies to get, get t any taller, unfortunately. <laughs> it's the process of getting taller in that adolescent in the growth spurt that's causing him or her to eat hundreds or sometimes thousands of calories more than would otherwise be the case. So that's obvious in those situations. Why not consider the possibility that a rapidly growing fat mass that's being triggered to take in too many calories could be the cause of excessive hunger um, and the overeating that follows. That's the carbohydrate insulin model. We focus on carbohydrates because they've flooded our diet in the last 40 years during the low fat years. Carbohydrates, especially the processed kinds, sugar, but just as much or perhaps even more so uh, the refined starches. Another one of my favorite moments was episode number 14 with Dr. Robert Lustig. Now, if you're looking for fireworks, this is the one for you. He, but he's not all about fireworks, right? He's got the pedigree. He he is an experienced clinician. Um, he's an experienced researcher. He knows the science inside and out, and he knows how to apply it to patients. Um, but he also is very, very passionate about it. And he, um, whether it comes to the, the, the dangers of sugar or fructose or the industri industry, the, the food industries that have been basically poisoning people for, for decades, he's very vocal about that and isn't going to back down. So when it comes to um, whether it was him calling out Dr. Neil, Neil Bernard and, and, and challenging him to a debate openly on the podcast, or when we talked about the, um, the definition of metabolic syndrome and his response was garbage, 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 because it, it doesn't, the, the definition of it doesn't do anything to address the underlying problem. And, and he really wants to get to the underlying issue. And so his stance on policy, his stance on research, um, his stance on clinical applications, I think are so important for people to know. And I love his, his fiery, uh, his fiery attitude about it. So here's a clip that, that exemplifies some of that. And that comes back to your talks about metabolic syndrome. I believe that's what you're talking about here yep. at this conference. And, you know, we define, we have our definition of the metabolic syndrome about the waist circumference and garbage. hypertension. Garbage. And, and you say, garbage. Well, all right. So let me, <laughs> you don't mince your words. I garbage. like that. So tell me about that. Um, they're all manifestations of the metabolic dysfunction. They're all markers for the metabolic dysfunction. They are not the causes. Yes, they cluster together. No argument there. Different people have different ones. Different races have different predilections to different diseases. And the reason is because it's not one thing, it's three. And I will describe that this afternoon, this morning. Um, it can be from obesity. I'm not saying it can't, but I think that's actually one of the rare causes of metabolic syndrome, not one of the common ones. It can be from stress because depressed people lose weight but have metabolic syndrome Yeah, and with visceral fat. And finally, you can mainline it. You can basically fry your liver and you can do that at normal weight and have metabolic syndrome. So... I think there are three ways to get there. And I think there are different foodstuffs that can, and behaviors that can contribute to them. And I think that there are ways to parse those three pathways in order to be able to help each person deal with the problem that is, has caused theirs. But 
if it's one size fits all, it'll never work. Yeah. I like that approach. And, and the definition doesn't define the disease. The definition is basically for billing purposes more Indeed. than anything else. That's right. So yeah. understand this is metabolic dysfunction, and I'll even give it a better name. It's mitochondrial overload. Right. Metabolic syndrome is mitochondrial overload in whatever tissue you're looking at. That is metabolic syndrome, and we have the data to prove it. Yes. Very good. Now, another one of my favorite episodes, and this might be a little bit of a teaser, it's episode 51. So it actually hasn't even launched yet, but it's coming next. And this is with Dr. Frank Mitlerner. Now, climate change is such an important issue for our, our generation and the next generations to come. But whether or not it's important isn't the question. It's, it's what can we do about it and how do we evaluate it? And that has become so polarizing. And one of the main pushes, unfortunately, has been that livestock are the problem and we have to reduce our meat consumption uh, to reduce our impact on climate change. But where does that become more propaganda and where does it deviate from true scientific principles? Well, that's where Frank, Dr. Frank Mitlerner comes in because he is an expert on this topic, on greenhouse gases, on livestock's contribution to it and industry's contribution to it. So this, this episode, um, I, I really appreciated because it, it, he describes things with the detail and the nuance that we need to know. Again, the flashy sound bites um, that become more propaganda are the ones that get propagated. But uh, but Dr. Mitlerner's approach of, wait, let's take a step back. And the way he discusses the difference between methane and carbon dioxide, the way he discusses about how livestock can actually uh, be a potential solution of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, um, putting things into perspective of their relative contributions. And if we wanted to have an impact, where should we direct our attention to have the biggest impact um, for climate change? These were some of the things I really appreciated uh, in my interview with Dr. Frank Mitlerner. So here's a clip of him explaining how the message has been um, overly simplified to, bring, to blame livestock and how we can see it in a broader picture. There was a very scathing article recently in the New York Times, the end of meat is here. And so there are a couple quotes um, from that article. One is, animal agriculture is the leading cause of global warming. Another quote is, we cannot protect our environment while continuing to eat meat regularly. This is not a refutable perspective. And then the third quote I want to read is, eating a plant-based diet is the most important contribution every individual can make to reduce global warming. Is any of that true? Well, I have to say we all have our filters, okay? We all have our biases and I have mine, right? So I, I first have to say that. Now, this gentleman's um, biases are clear and uh, they have been documented over the years. Uh, he is a very um, active um, vegan and, um, you know, really an activist in this field. He is an excellent writer, I have to say, but a lot of uh, the content he writes is just not based in, in facts. And so um, the reason why I have a beef with it I mean, a real beef with it is because he leads us on a dangerous path. Uh, and why is that? Because he makes people believe that what we eat is the most important consideration when reducing a nation's carbon footprint. When indeed we are now very aware of what really drives our carbon footprint. We just went through a major lockdown. Half of the world was on lockdown, as you know. Half of the world's human population was on lockdown. And what happened? Emissions went down in ways we have never seen before. All those cities like Beijing and Delhi and uh, Tokyo and Los Angeles had crystal clear skies, blue skies every day, blue skies. 
And then some of those economies went back to business like China and the air quality went right back to where it was. Air quality and greenhouse gases went right back to where they were. I have news for you. Our cars didn't stop. Our cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships did. So people like, uh, like Fur, the author of this article that you quoted, uh, put us on a wrong path, on a dangerous path for solutions by telling people all you need to do is change what you eat and we will save our climate. This is a dangerous uh, message that is misleading the public to make choices that will not get us to our goal. Now, I have to admit, it was a little painful for me to only pick five of my favorite moments. I mean, I could have picked 50 of my favorite moments from every single one, but then we'd be here for, for weeks and nobody wants that, trust me. Um, but I have to, two, two quick honorable mentions. One is Dr. Ron Krauss. Uh, I mean, as a lipidologist and cardiologist, I can talk lipids and cholesterol all day long. So my episode with Dr. Krauss maybe got a little technical for some people, but boy, did I sure enjoy it. He is a preeminent researcher and thought leader um, in lipidology and sees things from a broader perspective. And that's what I really appreciate um, about Dr. Krauss in that, in that episode. But my other honorable mention is sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum. It was with Todd White. And Todd is just such an amazing human being with his perspectives on business, um, on lifestyle, on meditation, on being a good person, on leading by example. And it was, it was just so eye-opening for me to interact with him um, and see how he runs his company, how he um, it's not all about making the money. It's about serving a purpose, creating your mission, creating an atmosphere and being a good person along the way. So I, I really appreciated that, um, approach from him. And also I learned a lot about low carbon wine. So that's a win-win situation. Uh, no question. So those were, you know, two honorable mentions I had to throw in there. So our five most popular, five, uh, particular moments I enjoyed and a couple of honorable mentions. So ah, it's been an amazing run. Um, not even at two years yet, but already at, at 50 episodes and almost 4 million views and downloads. So thank you all for uh, coming along on this ride. And I really look forward uh, to what's going to happen in the next 50 episodes. So if you have suggestions on uh, guests I could have on or ways to improve the podcast or change it, whatever you think, please let us know. You know, we'll certainly listen to everything and, and do whatever is within our power to make this a better product uh, for you. Because that's our goal, to help you, our listeners, to reach more people, to educate people about um, health, about low carb, and about how to improve your lives. So thanks again. It's been a whirlwind. It's been a great journey, and I really appreciate it. Take care of yourself, take care of others, and have a great day. <laughs>